And good morning again, everybody. It's good to see everybody's face this morning. Let me go ahead and just dismiss children and teachers to Children's Church this morning. We're thankful for that ministry as well, because they get to hear about Jesus as well as we do this morning. So um, open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 54. We're continuing our study, even on this Palm Sunday. We're continuing our study through the book of Isaiah, because it still points that same Jesus who uh, triumphantly marched through Jerusalem, right? So we're going to continue with the through the Gospel of Isaiah is, is where our series has been called. Last week we looked at obviously fifty three. If we're going to go, if we're going in order, fifty three, fifty four, and uh, we looked at that fourth servant song, which is undoubtedly the richest and clearest prophetic portrait of the atoning work of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. Right, and when you look at it, we looked at it last week. It's absolutely astounding how accurate Isaiah is in depicting. Jesus' suffering, his death, several centuries before he was born. There's just no other way to put it other than it's just incredible, it's astounding. And Isaiah spoke with such precision of Jesus' righteous life. We looked at his pierced flesh, his, his pierced flesh, his rejection by men, his utterly marred appearance on the cross, his sin-bearing, substitutionary, wrath-absorbing, sacrificial death. And, and we also told that he even held a silence in the face of unjust uh, trials and in the face of death itself. And we also saw that even his burial was depicted there in a rich man's tomb. So it's just amazing, right? Just the pinpoint accuracy of that prophecy. And there's no other possible explanation for, for that, that it could be so precise other than the fact that Isaiah's words were just not his own, that they didn't come from his own imagination they weren't shifted through some kind of interpretation uh, that, he was, that he had for, uh, of his own, but they, they came, as the Word of God says, that he, as he spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? Amen? Second Peter one twenty one tells us that. These and all the words of the Bible are God's revelation of himself, of his plans, his purposes, his promises, and they've all been graciously given to us. It's his, his disclosure to us. So that they're not, we're not held in mystery. And they are the true and reliable, trustworthy words of God himself. Who is true and reliable and trustworthy, right? And chapter 53 revealed that beautiful picture of that cooperation between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son in this work of redemption. And the Father sent his Son, and the Son came as a suffering servant to willingly and faithfully and obediently submit to the Father's plans and purposes. And in 54, we find out now what Jesus' atoning death that we read about last week accomplished for his people. So peek down at the end of uh, verse 17 here. I know we're, we're used to, in our culture, you know, having the summary statements, thesis statements up front in the first paragraph. At least that I was taught when I was in, in school. I don't know what the Common Core is teaching nowadays. But all that was up front, Right? But here we see it's at the, at the end of this passage here. And verse 17 gives us the, the interpretive lens. It says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So by his atoning work that we read about last week, Jesus has provided his people with this inheritance, an inheritance of righteousness that brings with it, as one commentator put it, succinctly spiritual abundance, Restored relationship with God and spiritual stability and security. That's what our inheritance is. 
And in a word, Jesus brings us peace. Right? Peace that we enjoy now, here on earth, even amidst all that's going on around us in our culture, in our world. And yet, we're going to have it peace in full measure, right, when, he, when Jesus returns. Jesus has done the work, and we are the ones who are the humble beneficiaries of that work. So this morning we're going to see that Isaiah's got to highlight these benefits, the benefits that every believer has, by, uh, that we all possess, with a series of reversals. So we're going to look um, at a few of these this morning. We're going to look at barrenness to fertility in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to see unfaithfulness to fidelity in verses 4 through 10. And then finally we'll see insecurity is going to be changed to fortitude or stability. So let's first look at that first point in verses 1 through 3 where we'll see this change, this transformation from barrenness to fertility. Let's read the very words of the living God. Isaiah chapter 54, 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Enlarge your place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. These are the very words of the living God. Now the first thing we can see in this text is that from God's miraculous work in Jesus Christ, it demands a response. It demands our response. It's not just information that we can just haphazardly look at and, and, and be quiet about, have no opinion about. We're given actual command as to how we ought to respond. And the proper response should be shouts of joy, singing. Our God is worthy of praise, amen? amen. Right? Many times through our study, we've, we've read the, the prophet's words to look, behold, to see and to listen. And we do need to behold and listen intently at God's word. And, it, and on repeat, we need to listen to God's word. Meditate on it and, 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 and repeat it to ourselves and memorize it. And we also need to gaze at the world with a, with a worldview that's given to us with, the fa- with its foundation in God's truth in the word. Through the lens of God's truth. But shouts of joy and singing should also accompany our exposure to God's Word, right? Do the truths of God's Word, does the Gospel excite you to the point that you can't help but verbalize it in joy and sing about it? God's people, Israel, had been in exile for 70 years, right? They had experienced political turbulence in the years, and also the years leading up to that exile as well, right? They'd, they'd lost sight of God's greatness and His beauty. They'd forgotten their God, They had misinterpreted God's discipline as abandonment. Had God forgotten his promises? Has he reneged on his commitments and his covenants that he made to the patriarchs, our our fathers and our ancestors? Were the surrounding pagan nations really too strong for God? As a result of the doubts and this lingering sin, they were, as a nation, they were spiritually ineffective and unfruitful. And that's what this barrenness is referring to in verse 1. That they were feeling the shame and the, dis- the disgrace of their situation of their separation from God. And they were personified now in this text as this barren woman that was unable to have children. And this would un- undoubtedly evoked 
lots of emotions for them and, 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 and a lot of memories of their history, right? Because after all, they, they were a nation that was established, that God had established through a man named Abraham and his wife, his, his barren wife, Sarah. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but if you look at, go back and look at, at Genesis chapter 12 and in chapter 15, we see God making this covenant with Abraham that he will make of you a great nation, he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And that his, this nation would, would populate the entire earth and be as a dust of, of the sands. And God fulfilled this promise to, to, to Abraham, to Sarah, by giving them this child, Isaac, they had waited. They tried on their own to do it their way, and it created havoc in this relationship. But, but God was faithful, and he had given them Isaac. In fact, Abraham itself means, right, the God of the nations, father of many nations, not God, the father of many nations. And this, this covenant was also repeated over and over through their history. It was repeated to, to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, and his name was actually changed later on to, to Israel, the name of the people of God. He said, it, God says to him in, in Genesis chapter 28, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and, and all your offspring will family, all the earth will be blessed. But God had a greater plan than just growing Israel's population. Right? He, he established a people for himself whose purpose, whose mission was to influence the entire world. By doing what? By, by reflecting the glory of God, their God. They were supposed to attract the surrounding peoples by displaying God's power and his goodness and his holiness. And they had failed in that mission. And sin had diverted them from that mission. But thankfully, right, our God is greater than sin, than our sin, right? Amen? And his mission will be accomplished. And amazingly, he will use us to accomplish that mission as well. God has taken it upon himself to, to re- reverse the situation, and that gives us reason to sing it. He's going to bless this barren woman with, with more children, Israel, this, this woman with, with more children than she could fit in her home. In, to, in, in other words, it's time to renovate, right? They're not, they're not just given permission to expand, but they're actually given a command to expand. He's saying you've got your certifications, you've got your building permits, you've got everything you need. Now go forward and build. Make room for this growing family. But the blessing goes just beyond a single family residence. right? The populations are going to grow so large that they'll, they'll need to spread out beyond Jerusalem itself. Your sons and daughters, God's telling me, are going to spill out into other neighboring lands. God's people invade the entire world with their presence and with their singing as they, as they bring the glory of God with them to wherever they go. The nations like, like Babylon, who had possessed Judah and had possessed Israel, are now going to become Israel's possession. And the scope of that announcement goes even beyond Israel, to the, to the people of Israel that we read about in 54, who was originally meant for them, but it's also meant for us today. It extends to God's people today, to the church, right? The church, which now includes, thankfully, Gentile sinners like most of us here, saved by God's grace. It's hard when you're looking at this passage not to read God's words, Jesus' words in between the lines of Matthew 28, and God 
And when Jesus said to them, to his disciples who were there before him, before he left to go ascend to the Father, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's also hard to miss the, the allusions here of this passage in Acts 1, when Jesus says to the same disciples and to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and also to all the ends of the earth. From the beginning, God's plan has been to seek and to save lost sinners. And as the years go on, as history continues to move forward, the number of God's children continue to increase. Right? The children of God mentioned in our text are the same ones that we saw mentioned in, 52, in chapter 52, verse 14, and also 53 last week, which you looked at those. So just briefly, 52, 14, we read, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he would sprinkle many nations. And also in 53, verses 10 and 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to be righteous. Why is that important? Why is it important to, to see that in this text this morning? Well, it's, it's important for at least three things, many, probably more than that, but the three things I want to point out this morning. It means that, first of all, Jesus was faithful to the Father's plans. Right? He was perfectly in union with God the Father in the plan of redemption, and he didn't follow some other plan, plan B, or whatever it might be. Secondly, it means that his atoning work was successful. It is successful. It continues to be successful. Sinners continue to be saved by his meritorious work. And then lastly, it means that if you're a follower of Christ, you are one of the ones that's mentioned in this as the offspring, mentioned this in this text. That's you. And you that means you, we also, that are mentioned in this text, have a privilege of participating in the, in the mission of God. It's a mission that predates us. It's a mission that's going to continue long after we're gone. And God graciously uses us to enlarge this tent, the tent of his church, by demonstrating and declaring the gospel, by, by sharing it in word and in action and in our behavior. Sometimes our tent, our enlarging our tents means an actual building expansion where we need to make room for more people to hear the gospel, right? But, but it also means that all of us are called in whatever we're doing to enlarge our tent by taking the gospel with us wherever we go with the Spirit's power. So our question is, do, do we trust God? Do we take Him at His word? That He has all authority in this world that He created and that He goes with us on mission. We have enough to sing and praise for what he has done and is doing so long as, again, we have eyes to see it. But we also have so much to sing and be joyful about now for what he is going to do in the future and who we will be in the future by what he's going to do by making us more like his son. A day is coming when we will see the incredible extent of God's glorious work when he's going to collect all his people from all times and places, 
from all backgrounds and traditions and ethnicities will be one redeemed people sharing a single identity as God's purified and beautiful bride. Amen? And that, and that brings us to our next point. As we look at unfaithfulness, the unfaithful wife, to a, fidelit- a fidelity, a, a loving union and reconciliation with our God, our husband. Let's read verses 4 through 10. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that with the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills Be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Many commentators refer to this text as a love song. God's love song for his people. And and we can see this very clearly when we read this part of the text, this portion of the text. You, You can feel the calm, comforting tone. And God's voice as he reassures his people of his love for them. There are times, right, when a firm word of discipline is needed. But there's other times where we need the soothing balm of correction to heal us from the painful effects of our sin, right? The nation had long felt the separation that hurt the painful effects of their unfaithfulness to her God. They had fear of God, a terrorizing fear of God, fear of the world and the impressively strong nations that were surrounding them. And think of it, think of Assyria, think of Syria, think of even their own kinsmen to the north. And of course, think of Babylon, who brought them into exile, right? Disgrace and shame. How can we undo what we've done? Can we still call ourselves God's? children, God's people. Doubt and confusion in their minds, right? Is God really in control? Will he save us from our condition? And then God reassures them that they still belong to him. Guilt and shame are our gifts when they reveal the sin and the need of repentance and faith. Even a terrorizing fear of God can lead us to repentance and to faith. It can be good for a time, but there's a time when They need to be replaced with confidence and security, right? Why? Because God has accomplished everything that's needed to reconcile us to himself. His work is the end of the matter, right? His his work removes my sin. It removes the, the shame and the grace of my sin, and it removes the shame and disgrace that I feel as the recipient of other sins toward me. And as we endeavor in this life, on this side of heaven... Right? 
to, we, we endeavor to apprehend that truth, to really to gather it in our minds, to, to grasp hold of it. Right? We, we endeavor to believe the truth. We endeavor to grow in that truth and, and to glory in that truth, to celebrate it as well. What truth is that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My former way of life, my former way of thinking, it's all died because now I belong to Christ. Right? I have a new identity and I'm living out that new identity now. But we also, if we're honest, right, we, we, we retain the marks and the scars of, the, of our past. Right? Whether those are physical or they're psychological or emotional, relational, to struggle. Right? It's a struggle from day to day when, when we painfully are reminded of our sin and, and the sins perpetrated against us. Right? But others, it, and when that happens, we, what, we, that guilt and shame, disgrace kind of is resurfaced. It comes back to the surface again. But how do we overcome those feelings? Those feelings can be powerful, right? If we're honest with ourselves. We do that by looking at our Savior. Or to use the metaphor that's used in this, in this text, we look to our husband. Right? Our security and our confidence in, is established in his character and what he has done. He is the one who's created us individually, and he's also gathered us together as his, as his church, right? A, a unified body of many members. He's our maker, as this text says, right? He's also the Lord of hosts, which means he's the strong, infinitely powerful military king who commands innumerable hosts of angels, all at his disposal. He's the Holy One of Israel, says here as well, that set apart, unblemished by sin, who exists in inapproachable light and glory, and he's the seated sovereign over the universe whose glorious existence demands our worship, undeterred, unceasing worship. Look to Isaiah 6 for that. And he's the redeemer, right? Who restores wayward sinners by what? Satisfying their sin debt, right? And his sacrificial, by his sacrificial death. What's a, what amazing God he is, amen? Amazing God. And you think of all he has done. His love is amazing. And no wonder it was so painful, right, for Israel when they experienced the separation for, from their God. Right? God likens them to this wife who has disgraced her husband and has been left alone because of that. He is the insulted party. And it's no wonder why there's so much fear and anxiety and grief when God momentarily hit his face with his overflowing anger. It didn't feel momentary. I guarantee you that, right? For them, the exile was 70 years long. God also temporarily covered the earth, right? With a, with a long-standing flood. As we see that allusion back, that, that reference back to no, the days of Noah. I'm sure it didn't feel momentary for Noah when he was on the ark with his family, with all those animals to take care of and tend to, and walls surrounding him as he's floating, right? But when you consider the gravity of sin itself, what it really is, it, that demeans and degrades and diminishes our all-powerful and holy and glorious God of the universe, it's astounding that his anger even ends at all, right? It's astounding that he would go as far beyond that to also initiate a way to overcome our adulterous nature of sin in order to reconcile his people to himself. 
But that's what he did. Although pained and angered by sin, which caused this holy God to recoil in disgust, he was also determined to embrace his people with his unfailing love, his loyal love, his steadfast love. And in keeping with his character and plan, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to perform that reconciling work, to to satisfy his righteous anger, his righteous indignation, and to forgive sin and to extend peace. Dane Ortland put it this way in his commentary. He says here, quote, God is saying, yes, I was angry, and I had a right to be, but my servant has taken your guilt away. Believe me that I have cleaned your slate so entirely you will forget all your heartache under a deluge of my felt love forever, end quote. I know this sounds elementary, but forever means forever, Right? God's serious about the stability of his love and his peace. It lasts forever. His anger is temporary, but not his love. Right? The passage assures us that we are secure in the peace of God that was obtained by Jesus Christ. It's more sure and certain than the landscape that we see around us. Look at verse 9 and 10 here. It says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills have been removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Nothing can topple God's everlasting love and his compassion toward his people. Everest would fall, have to fall first. Said the, and think about it this way. The most substantial thing and strong thing that you can think of is pathetically weak and compared to the indomitable force of God's has said, his steadfast love. Romans 8, 35 through 38. You know this one well, but we should be repeating this to ourselves. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor thing present nor things to come nor powers nor height or death, depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So along with the promise of God's enduring love is His commitment, we see, to restoring peace. Peace is what once characterized the created order but was disrupted, right? When, when, set, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when they rebelled against their Creator. And you can make the case that ever since the fall, we as the human race have tried everything we can to try to establish peace on our own you know, ad nauseum, but ultimately futile, right? And it will continue to be futile. And all along, God has instead been planning to restore peace in His world. He knows what it takes, it's not, and it's not by any human help that He needs it. Peace can only be established by God Himself. It's not the first time we're hearing about peace in this text and in this book. Last week, we, we, we've learned that the suffering servant who procured our peace, right? 
in 53, chapter, in 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The chastisement that he experienced is what brought us peace. He procured our peace. And go back even before that, all the way to chapter 9. We learned about the promised one, the promised prince of peace, who's now, we see, is the same as the suffering servant who procured peace. And now, this morning, we're learning about the, the, the dependability of God's peace. In verse 10, we, we still have a sign of God's former promise of peace in the clouds. In Genesis 9, God extended the peace to all living creatures by promising that he would never again destroy his earth with a worldwide flood. And the rainbow was that sign of that covenant, of that promise. And we also see in our passages this morning that the final consummation of peace, right, that the paradise that we're looking to be restored, that was in the garden, that was lost, will be restored, and, it, and that peace will characterize the new Jerusalem, because why? Because we see here that righteousness will reign and God will also protect His people. Let's look at verses 11 through 17 here. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord and the vindication or righteousness from, from me, declares the Lord. So just as in the preceding stanzas here, the contrast couldn't be more clear, couldn't be more sharp, couldn't be more stunning, actually, when you look at this one in particular. God, again, is addressing his, his people with this tone of compassion. He testifies of his great plans that he has for them, that he will permanently end their despair. He will comfort their hearts and he will solidify them in righteousness, solidify their feet in righteousness. And while earlier he was telling them that to go and to enlarge their tents, this time... God's the builder. He's the builder of this, this firm home. And it's not just a home, it's a, it's a residence of citizens. It's, it's, a, it's a city, a city of peace, a new Jerusalem. That's what Jerusalem means, city of peace. Antimony was this, was this black powder that was used, that was mixed with mortar for setting stones that not only was, would help forge them tightly together, but it would also create this, this really dark backdrop that would contrast with, with these bright glistening, glimmering stones to, to highlight their beauty. Right? The, the pinnacles or, the, or these turrets, 
There was a high fortified towers that were uh, as part of the city that would overlook the landscape, right? To, to overlook and see what was happening outside the walls in case there were any invaders that were, that were on their way. They're going to be in these red agates or, or rubies. In fact, the, the Hebrew word there is actually sun. They're going to, they're going to be as, as bright as, as the sun. And, and, and these gates are going to be made of crystals. And, and, and the walls are going to be covered with these precious stones. And it shows that God spared no expense right, for his people. They're no longer going to be distressed or poverty stricken. But they're going to have this beautiful place with unlimited resources. That's the picture that, that Isaiah is painting here. And that should sound familiar to our New Testament ears, right? We look at Revelation chapter 21. God, John gives this account of the new Jerusalem. And it's, it's magnificent. It, it's size and it, it's impressive structure. And these, and these bejeweled adorning walls and, and, and streets of gold. Interestingly, the temple is not mentioned here at all. Right? Why, why is that? It's because Jesus is finally present with his people. Right? There, there's no need for a temple because Jesus is a temple. John tells us that as well. There's no need for a temple because the Lord was with his people. The Lord is their temple. When we look at verse 14. His, his presence will, will also mean that there's going to be absence of any oppression or fear or terror. Right? Nothing will ever disrupt the peace of God that's going to be enjoyed by his people. They're going to have a restored paradise. And this restored paradise will be a forever paradise. An everlasting place of peace and comfort. God's peace also means that He is going to prevent, He's going to and protect His people from any harm that could possibly try to eclipse the walls. But just as impressive as these cities' decorative walls and structure will be the brilliant devotion and worship of those within the walls, right? They will be established, these people, these citizens, in righteousness and experience great and lasting peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. How are peace and righteousness linked? That's the question, right? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous by God, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness, we see, is, is the main ingredient to a peaceful existence with God. Right? A peaceful existence with a holy God. Without righteousness, we, we can't be welcomed. We can't be welcomed into the presence of God or enjoy His company. We can't be welcomed. We can't enjoy the company of God's Blessed presence and his peace without it. But, but Christ has what? He has, we see in this passage, imputed his righteousness. He, he has accounted his righteousness to us, credited to our account. And so in the New Jerusalem, there's not only going to be this material wealth, but there's going to be the spiritual abundance because every person is established in this righteousness that comes from Christ. That justification begins now and the full expression and the full heartbeat of righteousness that we're all hoping for and yearning for will finally be conditioned to us. Right? God will be peaceful with His people because they will be a righteous people. And peace is not only just this absence of conflict, but it's also spiritual wholeness. That's what it also refers to. That we won't be lacking anything. That our hearts will finally find God 
to be all-satisfying. There won't be anything else to search for because God is our all-satisfying God. Many commentators believe that this verse is an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 31, 30, uh, verses 31 through 33, which, which talks about the new covenant. Jeremiah says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, or, t- or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, give, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So unlike in times past, God would finally write the law of love on every person's heart, on all of his people's heart. This prophecy was, we saw, fulfilled in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on his people. And the Spirit is now within and dwells his people. And it convicts us of sin. It regenerates hearts. It brings them into saving relationship, reconciliation with, with, with God. Right? It turns a, a heart of stone to a heart of clay. He, he also applies the work of Christ to, to dead hearts, bringing them to spiritual life. And he also secures our inheritance, as Paul says in Ephesians. And, he, and the Spirit also teaches us about Christ. He illuminates the Scriptures. I mean, doesn't, we don't receive new revelation, but instead we have the completed revelation, but He makes sense of this revelation, illuminates it to our hearts and to our minds, and he also, so that we understand them, but then he also, the Spirit, is the one who then sanctifies us so that we will obey what we read in the Scriptures. In the city of God, we will finally have that glorified body, spirit, and mind, and the Spirit will, will be have completed His work in us so that we can live peaceably with God and we can be in perpetual union with Him, right? Perpetually worship Him the way that we were originally created to do. One of the obvious questions of this text, maybe some of you are waiting for this part, but we know this hasn't happened yet, right? So when is this supposed to all occur? When does this take place? It's obviously got to be a future day. How far future is it? Is it a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand-year period when, when Christ will come back to earth, rule the earth in peace until Satan is finally released and, and this, this, his temporary chains will, will be taken off and he'll finally defeat the final enemy? This is actually one place where I think, thankfully, um, amillennialists and premillennialists can agree. Because I think it helps because of the description of the city here. We see this description of the city all, uh, in all of its fine decorative elements that also match with what we see in Revelation chapter 21. And Revelation chapter 21 is about that completed, consummate time when everything will be, all foes will be vanquished and Christ will reign supreme. Although premillennialists believe that Jerusalem will be rebuilt to its former splendor, it will, it's not synonymous with the new Jerusalem, right? That appears to be described here, as I said. But there are some premillennialists, I just got to put out there, who do believe and point out that, that this is the, that the existence of real enemies here, we see in verses 15 through 17, do tend to make it a possible interpretation that it could be the millennial reign because there are still foes to be vanquished. There are still people who are enemies of God. Um, so, but, however, I believe that this text is referring to that final 
peaceful, glorious state of all things when Christ has defeated every enemy, including death, and his people will inhabit the new heavens and new earth, and they will be within the, the walls and the confines of this, this new, peaceful Jerusalem. And so in that case, what does verses 15 through 17 mean then? If there still seems to be an enemy that's here. I think that they're used to, to serve as an under, to underscore the, the sure and dependable and confidence that we have in the complete protection of God that he will have with his people forever, that they will enjoy forever. I believe God's here is, an, is in a sense, anticipating the questions that would come from Israel or any that was facing these military forces on and off throughout their history, but also could be from us as well today as we continue to wrestle with doubt and fear and anxiety uh, because of, of the enemies that we see prevailing against us, that attack us. And so the question is, what if someone did, God, what if someone did try to rise up and, and try to harm us again? And even though we believe God would protect us, right, on this side of eternity, we're still, we're still struggling, we're still wrestling with those questions that, to know that there, will there, that there will actually be a time when it will finally end. And it kind of reminds me of uh, of the, the, the questions a child would ask, right? These, uh, uh, these what-if questions, right? Recently I was watching um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with, with my kids, one of my favorite movies growing up, about Wayne Selinsky and how he creates this, this machine that can shrink things, shrink objects, and they actually accidentally shrinks the children, right? And so they're trying to make their way back and, and, and be unshrunk. I don't know how to say that, to grow again, to be enlarged. So my kids turned to me and, and asked me, Hey, Dad, so... What would you do if we were shrunk? Would you, would you be really careful when you're in the backyard looking for us that you wouldn't accidentally step on us? And the question I'm, I'm going with remind is like, how do you even answer that kind of a question? Right? It's a nonsensical question. That will never happen. You know? Um, and sometimes I, I placate them and say, yeah, I, I would do this or that. In all reality, it's just a hypothetical question. But the answer is that that would never happen, right? And so God answers us that way too in this passage. That, what if... Surrounding forces should try to rise up again and, and attack us. God's telling us that would never happen, right? It wouldn't happen because I just told you, didn't I, that you shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear, and from any terror, you should, that no terror will come to you. He goes on to show how absurd the question is by reassuring them that he is their protector. He tells them that he is the sovereign one of the universe, He's not only sovereign over the, the molecular structure, but he's, but he's also sovereign over all the events that occur within his universe. He's in complete control of his creation. He, he created the blacksmith, as he says here. The one that is responsible for, for forging these metals and raw materials into weapons of war. He's the one who gives humans the, this ingenuity and reason to be able to, to accomplish these things, these technologies, the God of all technology. And so, as that God, don't you think he can protect you? If he's the one that's forging the people who make these weapons, he's in complete control. So every would-be or hypothetical attacker is under God's control, and they wouldn't be able to thwart his destiny for his people. And that should not only comfort, comfort us, that should not only comfort us about the future, right, but also about the present. That we will still in this time, experience turbulence in our life. We, we, we will be afflicted and storm-tossed and be anxious, but we can realize and, and rely on the fact that God is in control and that he's, he's wielding everything for the good of his people. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Yes, the Apostle Paul himself despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We can rely on Christ in our present, that He is working all things for the good and for, for, for His good, for our good, for His glory, even though we don't understand always what that means and what that looks like when we're in the, we're in the throes of pain, but we can trust it. We can trust Him with our future as well. Look at verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness, their vindication from me, declares the Lord. God will not only protect us from any physical weapon that could potentially harm us, but also words. What do I mean by words? Any antagonism or charges or accusations of your past sins, your past failures, or anything that could warrant God's judgment, they're all silenced by Christ. Not simply because Satan has been defeated, but because the charges themselves are now erroneous. They are inadmissible in God's court because our penalty and our debt was paid for by Christ, the perfect servant of the Lord. And now we're inheritors of Christ's righteousness. So in closing, a question is, do we believe that? Do we have confidence in the cross of Christ and what he has procured for us? Do we, do we have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? We, we can't experience the peace of God that satisfies our hearts until we have peace with God. Turning from enemies into children of God. Going back to the opening lines, also the question is, does the gospel and all the benefits that we possess as children of God, encourage us to sing. I hope that we can all say that this morning. Our God is a great God. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We declare that you are good, that you are mighty, you are just, you are holy. You are all these things. And you also, for a time, poured out your anger. But for all those who are in Christ, the anger does not fall on us. It's fallen first on your Son. And he has absorbed the wrath, that he has paid the penalty. Now we are inheritors of great possessions, the greatest possession being our relationship with you. And so, Lord, we, we, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that would, that would stir us to confidence and trust and dependability on you in all that we go through in all circumstances that we face in our life, that we are no longer, uh, no longer befall the consequences of our sins eternally, but instead we can know that we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So Lord, we pray you keep our, high, our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus as we continue to meditate on his word. Holy Spirit, empower us for mission as well as we sing the songs. May they be overheard by people around us so they too would hear the good news and turn to Jesus Christ and find peace in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.